Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode 64, The Forest for the Trees. Now we're still exploring the R versus should problem, but I feel a change of direction. And if you saw episode 63, we talked a little bit about that, about how we're going to shift a little bit of the emphasis off of ourselves and into the community of people or the global universe that we live in. I think it's important. And so the forest for the trees metaphor for me, which I love because it's kind of an ecology thing, right? I mean, you know, one of the things I bring to the table in this argument is an understanding of evolutionary biology. And so any of the biological entities as used as metaphors make a whole lot of sense to me because it goes so far beyond that. And so people will say, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees. And to me, what this means is we get, many of us sometimes, and sometimes people all the time, get bogged down by the details. You know, we get overwhelmed by looking at very small pieces of the world and like essentially focus on the tree. And imagine yourself if you walked right up to a tree to where your nose is just touching the bark, and all you can see is maybe a one-foot circle of that tree and that bark. Somebody would ask you to describe that forest, you're not going to have very much information. Uh, And then vice versa, if you zoomed all the way out to like a space person floating around in a spacesuit and looked down at a forest, you're not going to be able to describe much of the trees. And so there's, there's the need to simultaneously understand multiple levels of detail. And this is a fundamental element of ecology. We call it scale. Right, you think about a map. You know, a map has a scale. It's like one inch equals ten miles, or something like that. So you have varying scales of maps, so you can sort of reduce the world into a way that you can actually look at a at a bigger scale. Or now we have like remote sensing, where you, satellites are taking pictures of the Earth, and we can see all kinds of information at once, but we don't really know anything about the details, and vice versa. So there's, as a human, <laughs> we are limited by how we can look at these things. Uh, we can look at atoms, sort of, right? We can look at cells. We can see anything bigger than a half a millimeter without the aid of a microscope. But then once things get to be so enormous, like a literal forest, we can no longer really look at them in the same way. And so we have to sort of shift uh, the tools that we use and the way that we look at these things. Otherwise, we're always looking at the same level, Right, And this we refer to commonly as our perspective. It allows us as humans to zoom in and out whether using a little bit of our imagination. You know, even seeing an atom to me, that's using some imagination. You're not seeing it actual. You're using some sort of, you know, magnets or electricity or something to sort of paint a picture in the same way as you would like use radar to see what the bottom of the ocean looks like. You can't actually see the bottom of the ocean 10 miles down, but you can use some tools to generate a picture of what it looks like and then look at the picture and understand that that's a representation. Anyway, so it's amazing that humans can do that, right? And we shift in and out of these modes all the time, but we fundamentally are used to sort of the way that we see the world. Our field of view is our perspective. That's what there is. There's some people over there, there's some cars coming down the road, there's a house, there's a sky. That's my perspective. You forget, well, there's a moon up there, and there's a core in the earth down there, and over there there's an ocean, and geez, there's depth to the ocean, and there's a whole bunch of people behind me. <laughs> you know, we just don't, we don't see these things, but I think it's important, because we can, to sort of understand that. And I think what we've been doing necessarily, and what we often do in the world of personal growth and self-help, is study ourselves, right? It's almost as if we're like taking a tree out of the forest and trying to learn as much as we can about the tree. Uh, But we forget 
that the tree is dependent on the forest. It's dependent or it's at least influenced by it. Maybe the tree would do better if it was out in a field all by itself. Maybe it would have more sun. Maybe it would have more nutrients. Maybe it would grow stronger and bigger. But maybe it would also be more susceptible to wind knocking it down or fire burning it up or it wouldn't have the protection of its neighbors. You know, who knows, right? That doesn't matter because that's not the question that we're asking. We're looking at a tree that is actually in a forest. And so you have to understand both ends of that spectrum, right? And that's what I love about ecology is you sort of say, I'm really interested in how this damselfish that lives in this kind of an enemy in the Great Barrier Reef and the, you know, the southeastern coast of Australia, nowhere else in the world, and what's important to it? Well, I want to learn about it. So what's going to influence it? Well, you probably don't need to study um, you know, herbaceous plants on Mount Kilimanjaro. Right, you can sort of eliminate the things that might in, but maybe maybe they will. Maybe there are like pollen grains that blow. Maybe there are winds, but anyway, what you do is you develop a picture of probability of things that may actually influence that. And you really do got to start at the at the world because you forget these things. You know, we forget that you know the sand grains blowing off of Africa seed the storms that become hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, right? I mean, these things are linked sometimes at these ginormous scales. The point is, there's sort of like a relative scope. There's a relative. If you're looking at a tree, we know what size a tree is. You probably don't have to consider planetary motion. You know, you probably don't have to consider atomic vibration, right? And But so you can shrink the sort of scope around how you might think about that tree. We'll flip that back to the the person, you know, now let's use the metaphor of the forest and the trees where we are the tree and our species is the forest. And there's no denying that that's how species work because of the fundamental DNA that underlies all individuals in the species. We are intrinsically linked by that. We are motivated to reproduce with each other in order to perpetuate that molecule through time. And we were also, as I've said in episodes before, which I think is, is critical to the R versus should problem and sort of my message is that we are compelled to develop our DNA and express our unique individuality into the world as a contribution of that DNA. And so you've got two purposes bifurcated, bifold, bimodal purpose in this life. One is to develop yourself as an individual and make a contribution to society. So right there, it's neither individual nor, it's neither tree nor forest, it's both, right? But that's what you have to do in your lifetime. And then secondarily, you have the capacity to influence future generations by passing that, your genes into the future. Now, I don't think... Everybody has to pass their genes on just because of the nature of reproduction. It's not a one-to-one replacement necessarily. In fact, at the rate humans are going with overpopulation, a one-to-one is probably way too much. <laughs> and so I don't think everybody has to reproduce. I don't think that's a, I think as a group, we have to ensure that some of us do. But as individuals, I think it, it's intrinsically important to develop your R. And that's sort of the underlying, again, reasoning about why the R is so important. And again, so 
Focusing on the trees is good in some cases. If you're interested in the way that, um, you know, uh, fire influences, you know, resistance or xylem flow in individual trees, you're going to look at a bunch of individual trees and try to measure that. If you're interested in sort of how atmospheric nitrogen deposition is influenced by a a forest and how much uptake there might be of that nutrient into the forest, you're going to look at the whole system. But you're going to simultaneously be doing both at different times, depending on what the question is. Now, something to layer on top of this or underneath this is what I was getting at uh, last week. So there's, there's this idea with the forest of the trees that there's a collective, right? And so now we could change our perspective or our scope, and we're not no longer talking about an individual person being a tree and the group of people or a species being the forest. But let's look at a tree as some fundamental element of ourselves, like a personality trait or a quirk or an interest or something that we're curious about. And then the forest being our whole entire self, right? Now we've kind of shifted. And that's something that we do fundamentally in ecology to change perspective is sort of use the same model, the forest and the trees, but shift our scale or our scope of what we're looking at across, you know, the scale from size, levels of organization from atoms, you know, to, to molecules, to uh, compounds, to uh, tissues, to organs, to organ systems, to individuals, to populations, all of those different levels. And so if we're going to look at examine different characteristics of an individual, what I brought up last time was the idea that we are not fundamentally only analytic or empirical beings. Our brain is not just some calculator that we use to navigate the world. We have other elements to us. (laughs) And what I talked about last time mostly was the feeling element or the somatic part. But there's a, a couple more depending on how you want to break it out. For me so far, I've only made it into the idea that we are not solely analytic because that's how I've spent 49 of my first years, you know, 48 or whatever, most of my life in this analytical thing, thinking that was primarily how I'm going to interpret and navigate the world and realizing that that is, uh, way oversimplified and that I prefer to develop my whole self, which is going to include some elements of feeling and doing, uh, in the world. And this gets at the concept, um, or sort of, inter- I want to introduce this concept, which is sort of what I'm talking about of integrity of wholeness and completeness. Now the, the, the basic definition of integrity is something like being whole or undivided, right? And so if, I continued to live my life as a primarily analytical being and not understand and develop and train and learn about the other parts of what it means to be a human being, then I was not living in integrity the way I see it. Uh, Integrity is not so much like doing the right thing all the time, right? It's just like paying attention to all of the stuff that you have access to and including that in the group. You know, it's like being the ultimate um, inclusion, now, Paul Godola, who I interviewed in Curiosities Series 1, and I plan to interview again for the R vs. Should interview series, he defines integrity as the congruence of thoughts, words, and actions. And I like this because it gets at the multiple aspects of being human. You know, your thoughts, the analytical stuff, your words, how you communicate with the world, and then your actions, what you do out there in the world. And then I might add on top of this, uh, your... Um, the in, in the integrity of your feelings, like to add the congruence of your thoughts, words, actions, and feelings. And maybe that's inherent in thoughts for Paul. And he also calls congruence the antidote of hypocrisy, which I just think is beautiful. And so there's this idea of 
of the importance of being whole and shifting outside the analytical mode to understand the other aspects of being human is part of that process. And then certainly in the R versus should problem, I think we understand, I understand at this point, and hopefully I've done a decent job of, of sharing with you that you can't analyze your way out of this. Um, that sometimes like in episode 63, discriminating between whether this is an ent- an extrinsic or an ex in- intrinsic motivation um, uh, and making a decision, you really have to learn to identify how you feel to know where your R is. And so if you're trying to analyze that, you may never get there. Or you may, worse, make the wrong decision and think that you feel a certain way, but really that's just a should that you've... Um, that's that's overpowered you to the point where you don't know that it's a should anymore, which I think is what's happening in the world right now. We've just lost touch. So I think there's two things that we can do to, to, to embrace the forest and get out of the tree in both the, the, the individual sense and sort of the elements of our personality sense, and that is to embrace our sensory, feeling, energetic, being, uh, which I will hopefully at least share some resources about or develop a little more in future episodes. And maybe I'll share a little bit about the work that I've been doing and what I've discovered about that part of our bodies and our connectivity to the world. And then the idea that, that, that we are members of a community. And what, you know, again, I think it's important to focus on yourself first and sort of understand things like the, the, the personal inventory and your values and, and, your, and your needs and, and how you're going to sort of enter the world just, to, sh- just to, to simplify your system and get rid of all that extemporaneous crap. That's really going to help us down the road of the R versus should problem. But now I think there's a point where you have to shift gears and participate in the outer world and sort of bounce yourself off of other people and mirror them and understand where you fall in this integrity path. And so can you now can you now go out and practice what you have now understand that you believe, right? Can you go out in the world and change some of the things? And maybe I won't get really I'll try not to get angry when somebody cuts me off in traffic because I understand that I don't really know what their circumstances are and that it wasn't personal and they didn't do this to hurt me. Uh, and I control my reaction to that. Maybe you, that's like your thing. Maybe after six months of doing that, you can actually get to a point when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you laugh. Uh, it's the most amazing thing I've heard in a long time, my, my coach, whatever you want to call him, the guy who guides me through my somatic work, he said his compatriots, his colleagues, the other people that do the type of work that he does, that he hangs out with, when something negative happens in their life, um, they actually will be like, sweet, because it gives them an opportunity to practice what they've learned and to live in that integrity, right? And not introduce all of these things that we do, like the all versus none thinking, the perfectionism, the low self-esteem, the imposter syndrome, the lack of connectivity, the isolation, the low curiosity, the dissatisfaction with life, the restlessness, the anxiety and depression that we feel. Those things tend to drive our reactions to things. And, you know, real self-help practitioners look at the things that happen in life differently and they look at them as opportunities. And for me, a big part of wanting to do all this stuff is to do that exact sort of thing. When something happens to me in the past, something negative happens to me, 
Somebody expresses dissatisfaction with my behavior, my work. Somebody yells at me. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. Somebody gives me, says no when I want them to say yes. Those things would trigger a physical and energetic reaction in me that was exceptionally negative, that I did not want to feel, that I did not enjoy. And instead of learning to process that, change that, have a new perspective on that, manage that, I would turn that into something 10 times bigger. You know, it's like the Buddhist story of the two arrows. You know, you travel guys traveling through the forest, he gets hit by an arrow, hit by an arrow and he stands there and looks around and sort of ruminates about getting hit by an arrow and how much that sucks. And he gets hit with a second one. And the idea, I think, in that little parable is that we are the second arrow. We, we shoot ourselves. And so that, that, I was the king of that. I would turn something bad into something t- catastrophic. To really the point where, like, if, if someone I loved expressed displeasure with me, I could turn that into they're going to leave me and abandon me. And, in fact, that manifested itself in my life by actually happening. <laughs> my first wife asked for a divorce. It's funny now. But that's why, that's what's motivating me is, how, okay, maybe I can learn to navigate these things that are normal parts of the world that happen in a different way <laughs> that produces a less terrible result. Okay, enough about that. And so I think that's why we do this kind of work. Um, and I think at this point in the work that I'm describing um, that eventually will become sort of a, a, a how-to or sort of a how I, you know, and it, a methodology and not just a theoretical world, um, is, to, is to improve our lives in that respect by spending less time creating dramas that aren't really necessary. And that, my friends, happens in your mind. <laughs> That's anal- analytical. That's analysis. But you also, the, the repercussions of that are feelings. And so I, I, don't, I shared this list just a second ago, but I'll go through it again. And I, I think the things that I've experienced in my life that I want less of are, are fairly common, and maybe you've experienced them too. Things like anxiety and depression. Those can be addressed by, by simply learning to understand how we react to things. And I'll just say here, I did 10 years with the cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's all well and good. But for me, that was all analytical. Anybody can understand all or none thinking. We, we tend to go, oh, well, this guy cut me off in traffic, so I'm a terrible driver and I never should drive again. You know, that sort of thing. Or I'm a terrible driver and I'm going to wreck and I'm going to kill people. You know, that would be the catastrophic thinking. It's easy to understand what those things are, But unless we do something about it differently, besides just intellectually understanding what it is, it's never going to change. And so what I'm learning is that I have seen change when I have added another level of understanding from another perspective outside that of the analytical mind. And so far, that includes things like what, you know, what Paul said, the words that I use to participate with the world, you know, not just my thoughts, and the actions that I do in my daily life, and then what I would add to that, understanding and monitoring my feelings around those things. That in, in, integral, holistic package of things is, is how the change occurs. And, and, and sure, the thoughts and the analytical part of that is important to understand, but it's only 
part of it, 25% maybe, right? And so we're, we're shifting into the doing or the, the, the real stuff, and, and that has nothing to do with it. And as I start, talked about in episode 63, in fact, I've learned to trust that I, I really do understand this stuff analytically to the point I don't need to think about it anymore. It's like driving. I can actually go out into the world and not worry about whether or not I understand it. And that frees me up to participate in it from a feeling sensory perspective. And you know what? I do understand it. It turns out if something happens, I I sort of plug in the intellectual knowledge where it needs to go. And I don't, it's it's just like driving. You don't think about driving. You just do it. And that's the beauty of sort of driving a six-hour trip and sort of being like, whoa, I don't even realize that happened. That's the somatic body thing, right? That's the... We have this, and we can and we can use it in our daily lives for our benefit. And so, in addition to like anxiety and depression, if you experience things like just general restlessness, that's another thing I just hate. Like I always felt, and to a lesser degree now, that I'm supposed to be doing something else. And really, that's just because it's uncomfortable sitting with this analytical brain because I've powered it up so high. I've driven all my resources into it. It doesn't stop, and I don't have any mechanism to let it stop. I've just sort of said, my MO is I'm going to crank up my analytical brain because that means I'm smart, and that's a good thing in the world, right? That's the shoulds talking. If I'm smart, I'm awesome. So if I just push everything into that, I'm going to be Superman. But you know what? That ends up just a whole bunch of ruminating, all or none thinking, catastrophic thinking, black and white thinking, the same thing. I'm not good enough. I'm an imposter. Um... That's what that ends up doing. Your analytical brain will turn evil if you let it run the show 100% of the time. And then just general dissatisfaction with things. You know, I've realized that some things really aren't that bad, but my fundamental reaction to them is just sort of be dissatisfied. And I think, again, that has to do with uh, the analytical mind and expectations. A couple of other interesting things are, I think, low curiosity. You know, I've been doing the curiosity interview series, I realize how you know, how fundamental curiosity is to a human life and how important it is to maintain and nurture that or you're just the opposite because the opposite is just not any fun. Um, not being curious or interested about learning and developing things is um, is not good for a being that's going to be around for 70 to 80 years. And then the big one, which has a lot to do with the forest and the trees metaphor, are isolation and lack of connectivity. It's becoming more and more apparent to me how isolated we are in the world, even when we're surrounded by people. And this isn't a result of the R versus should problem. I mean, we've, we've just put more effort into, again, living in here and not out there, right? So that's, that's pretty simple. Um, and for me, of course, imposter syndrome and never thinking I'm good enough and the general low self-esteem that goes with that, trying to be perfect about everything and, and not feeling good enough, all that is related. And, I, and if you do any of those things, and there's certainly more, I really think, um, one, I would love to have you participate in this by commenting or emailing or you know, following along or, or staying with me to see where, where this ends up, uh, maybe potentially being uh, on one of my interviews even, um, and just sort of um, allowing me to develop this idea at, at, at an organic pace um, and um, as frustrating as that may be sometimes. So I, I appreciate you listening. This has been Episode 64, The Forest for the Trees and the R versus Should Problem and Integrity. 
I hope you're enjoying thus far. Please subscribe to my podcast so you get it every week or follow me on YouTube or you can go to my webpage www.chrisbercher.com and you can uh, subscribe there and you get a, a weekly email or however you want it to let you know when episodes come up. There's new episodes every Friday. There's a flashback episode on Monday and a preview of Friday's episode comes out on Wednesday. Don't forget I've started blogging on Medium and you can find me there and you can get three articles free a month or you can subscribe and there's just a wealth of cool stories uh, to read and I'll be summarizing those articles and posting them on my website too so you won't miss anything. I appreciate it, guys. I'm Chris Bercher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, and I'll see you next week.